Thank you for listening to this podcast. The Ville Church provides all of its resources for free. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving financially. For more information on how to give and other resources, please visit www.theville.church. I had an interesting morning this morning. I'll ask you guys to pray with me uh, and for me. We had a friend spend the night last, with us last night. She lives in Melbourne, but she came up and spent the night. This morning as I got up, uh, she was in her room. She asked me to come in and, and sit with her. She was listening to a phone call, and the phone call was about her father who had fell in the night and hurt himself so badly he may not survive. And so she, he's in Cleveland. She's here. She's trying to work through all the details, and he has is, is such uh, damage on his head. They said they could do some surgery, some treatments, but it, he may not ever regain consciousness again. So they have a lot of decisions to make. So before I begin, I'd like to pray. If you join me in prayer, pray for her, pray for her family and decisions they've got to make in the next few hours. Father, thank you. Thank you that um, as we look today at the joy you give us at Christmas, and we think of, I think of my friend Teresa and her family and all the decisions they have to make in regard to her father. And uh, Father, just, I, I pray for them. I pray you'll give them your, your, your wisdom, your strength uh, to make the decisions they need to make. And, um, and Father, just to, uh, to, to let them know that the joy that we have at Christmas is not because of the circumstances of life, it is because of person and the person of Christ. So Father, may that be real and true for them today. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, in preparing for Christmas, in the, uh, I'm kind of vibrating, okay, um, we, we, we looked at the four Sundays before Christmas, we started last Sunday, and um, Roddy talked about the love of Christmas, I get a chance to talk about joy at Christmas, next week Jay will talk about peace at Christmas, and then we'll finish the series the last Sunday in December on hope, the hope Christmas brings, looking to the new year 2020. But as I looked at the joy in the Christmas story, we, we just sang joy to the world. Uh, joy is a major theme at Christmas. And if you read the biblical narratives, as I read in Matthew and in Luke, there are two times that joy, the word joy is actually mentioned in those passages. And uh, I'd like to read them to us and, and, and think about it. In Matthew, it is talking about the wise men when they came to, to see, the, 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 to worship the new king. They told even King Herod, they said, we've come to worship him. And as they left, Herod, Herod told them to go and find him. I want to worship him too. But as we know the story, that wasn't true. He wanted to destroy him. But as in the passage, it says, after they listened to the king, uh, they went on their way. And behold, the star they had seen when it arose with, went before them till it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, with great joy. It was just a joy, kind of a, a small joy. It was a great joy. They were rejoicing. Similarly, in Luke chapter 2, as we know, the story of the, the, the angels came and met the shepherds in the fields. In that passage, it says, in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good, good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So I love that both, both passages talk about great joy. So I thought, what brings great joy? What brings us great joy? For the wise men in Matthew, it was the close to a long journey. 
It was their search for this new king. They were almost there. It was the fulfillment of their longing to meet this new king. They were almost there. And when they saw the star that had led them, they said, we're near. We're almost there. And they come to worship him, and they would soon be able to fulfill that longing. Similarly for the shepherds and, and all of Israel and Luke, they had been waiting for over 400 years for the Messiah to come. They had been told he's coming, wait, he's coming. The, the prophets had prophesied he's coming, and they had been waiting and hearing about it year after year after year. They longed for his appearance. His coming was a fulfillment of that longing, and they were being told, this is great joy. It is finally coming to pass. But also the angel said, it's not only for, for you, but he said, this is be great joy for all the people, for everyone. His coming will fulfill the longing. So I thought about that. Great joy comes when our longings are fulfilled, our desires are met. We have a longing for something in our lives. And when, when that just comes to pass, we have great joy. Think about it. When someone finishes a course of study, graduates high school or college, there's great joy. There's a longing to finish. I mean, when you're a student in school, you can't wait for that day. You long for it. When you're in college, you know, like when you first start your first year, will this day ever come? You long for it. You work hard for it. And the, and the celebration is not only for you. It's for your whole family. They have longed for that. They want that for you. And there's great celebration. Similarly, when, when someone gets married, many, many people, and for all of us, I think we long for relationships in our lives. And we long for that special relationship that we can live life with. So marriage is a longing in people's lives. And when there's a marriage, there's great joy that this longing is being fulfilled, that this two are coming together, they're going to be one. And I know for me, that was true, not only for me, but for my whole family. I remember when I was getting into Okani, and, and I was older, and I think my family were thinking, is this young man ever going to find someone who will actually live with him? And I, I, I remember when I decided I want to propose to Connie. So I, I was living in Africa at the time, and I wrote to my family. I said, I'm going to the city where Connie lives, and I'm going to propose. And that was about two weeks before it actually happened. And I did that because I wanted them to hold me accountable because I was, you know, like most guys, I was, I was, I was fearful. What was going to happen? What was she going to say? But I remember when I proposed, and she said, yes, of course, I called my family. I got my mom on the phone. And that time, we didn't make many phone calls from Africa because it was very expensive. But I got her on the phone, and... And uh, I, said, I said, how are you? How's the weather? And she said, forget about the weather. What did she say? I said, so you got the letter. Yeah, I got the letter. What did she say? And I, I said, she said yes. And I could just see my mother. I think my father had to hold her. Because she said, thank you, Jesus. Praise Jesus. There was great joy. Because this longing for her, for me, was fulfilled. And then think about when a baby is born. Isn't that not great joy? There's a longing in a family to have children, to have uh, the family completed that way, and you long for it. Some people struggle to have children, and that longing just kind of increases. And then when the, 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 you find out you're, you're going to have a child, there's nine months of, of waiting and longing to see this child. It brings great joy when the child is born in a longing. And then uh, those of you who have had children or have them now, and they're younger, and they, they start to grow, and they start to... Uh, to produce these waste from their body and the, the diapers start to pile up, there's a longing that this young person would learn to use that facility on his own, to be potty trained. There's a longing, and, and if, if you've been there, and I've been there three times, 
When that happens, there's great joy. Hey, yeah, we, we tell everybody. So and so, our little child is finally a potty trained. There's, you know, and for us living where we lived in Africa, we used cloth diapers. And so we would put them in a bucket and save them for three or four days until the time came to clean them together. And that, that bucket was not a pleasant thing to have around. So when, when, when they finished and they were able not to have to use that bucket, we were, we were rejoicing. We were, it was great joy. And then for those of us who are older and the children are, are older, when that baby, that beautiful baby grows up and they become an adult, we long for the time they can move out on their own and start their own life. There's a lot of joy when, when that happens. They, they no longer depend on us. They're, they're living that way. So it's like those are longings in our lives, and, and there's joy when we see them fulfilled. But those longings are temporary, and the joy we experience in seeing them fulfilled is but a glimpse of the joy we experience when our heart longings are fulfilled, when what's deep within us is fulfilled. And I think for us as Christians, great joy for us is when we know that Jesus fulfills those longings within us and satisfies our deepest desires. What are some of our heart longings? What are those things that we long for in our lives? And for me personally, I'd like to look at three of them. Maybe you can identify. I think we can, we can see. This is, this is where we are. For me, I, there the three that I looked at for myself is I long to be known and accepted. I long to be known and accepted. And when I was a younger man, I, I, I feared that if people really knew me, they wouldn't accept me. And I really admired people who said, I'm comfortable in my own skin because I wasn't. To be accepted, I felt like I had to change to be like what people wanted. And then they could accept me. They, I couldn't accept myself, maybe. And I, could, they, I didn't think they could accept me. And so this led to me living kind of two lives. One with my friends at school, and then one with people that I would attend church with. It was like I was living two because I was trying to please people because I didn't think they could accept me for who I was if they really knew me. And then when I was getting to know my wife, I told her I had made a lot of mistakes in relationships with young ladies, and, and I didn't want to hurt her. I said, I, I told her I, I could understand if she didn't want to pursue a relationship with me because, you know, I, I didn't trust myself in, in these relationships. And thankfully, so she told me, she said, she knows that all of us have dark places in our lives, and, and she was willing to take that risk of being hurt to get to know me. And I thought about that. I, I longed to be known and accepted by others. And then I thought, God knows us even better than we know ourselves. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 30, it says, even the hairs of your head are numbered. God knows us so well. Why would somebody, somebody number the hairs of our head? It's important to God. He knows us that well. I mean, it seems like a, it's a small fact to me that my hairs are numbered, even though they're getting less every day, it seems. But they are numbered, and he knows them. That's the number. It's important to him. Then in Psalm 139, 1 and 2, it says, the psalmist says, Oh, Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and I, when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. When I thought about it, I thought, how many times, have you ever thought about how many times you sit down and stand up in a day's time? Have you ever thought about that? It, it, I mean, I, I, to think to count that, it, but the God sees that. God knows that. God knows everything. And he says, you discern my thoughts from afar. God knows my thoughts even before I, I get there. He knows my thoughts. He knows me so, so well. And then he told Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, he says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I knew you even before you were able to form a thought. I knew you. 
He knows us. And then in uh, Luke chapter 16 and verse 15, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees who were challenging him. And he said, he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. We try to justify ourselves and make ourselves one way before others. And he says, it won't work because God knows your heart. God knows you. And then in John chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, again it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem, speaking of Jesus at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knew what was in man. He knows what's in us. We can't hide. We can't fool God. He knows us. And I think even that he knows us. And, and when I know myself, I see what's really within me. When I, when I shared with Connie before we started to know each other how, how, how dark I can be sometimes or how I, I don't even like myself, I think even though Jesus knows us and knows all of our, all our baggage, he came for us. And all of us, even those who think we've got it together, and those of us who really know we have nothing together, we're all messed up. He came for us. He came for all of us. In Luke chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus' first message from the prophet Isaiah, he told the people, he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Jesus said, I've come for the poor, the captives, the blind, and the oppressed. If that fits you, if you see yourself in one of those categories, I've come for you. I've come for you. And then in Luke chapter 5, again, 27, 31, Jesus goes out of his way to say, I've come for people that nobody else wants to be with. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Tax collectors of the time were the most despised people because they collected taxes for the occupying Roman forces. And they were giving that money to them. And many times, they would not only collect taxes, they would extort more money. And so they were protected by the law. So they were used by the Romans and hated by their own people. So nobody wanted to be with them. But Jesus went out of his way specifically for this man named Levi, who we know as Matthew, who wrote the first of the Gospels that are recorded in their Bibles. And Jesus says, follow me. Everybody else was running from him. They didn't want to be near him. And Jesus says, follow me. But not only that, it says after that in verse 29, that passage says, that, and Levi made a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining with the table. He had, had to have tax collectors with him because nobody else wanted to be with him. That was the only friends he could have was others like him. So they were with him, and Jesus was there with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders, grumbled at his disciples, grumbled at him saying, why do you eat with these tax collectors and sinners? Why do you even mix with these people? And Jesus answered them. He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus says, these people know their condition. They know that they're not pretty people to be with. They know they don't feel like they're well. You, you people who are religious, you think you're well. You're good. But I, I, I want to be with those who, who are sick. And, and it's really interesting. He hung out with these people so much that in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 19, people begin to say of Jesus, look at him. Look at Jesus. 
a glutton, and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. They begin to label him that way. He's just like them. He's no different. He didn't mind it. He was okay with it. And I thought, not only did he hang out with them, not only did he get with the people who were all messed up, who were in low or despised positions, he actually welcomed them to himself. He didn't just visit with them and speed them on the street and, you know, speak to them there. He said, come be with me. Come. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You're struggling with life. You're having problems. Come. Come to me. I want you with me. I will take your heavy ladens. I will give you rest. And then in Luke 5, 32, as he was with Matthew and all the people at his house, after he said, I've not, the, the, the well, the, those who are well have no need of a physician, he said, because I've come to call, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So I've come to be with the sinners because I want them to come to repentance. You think you or think you're righteous, you have no need of me. But these people do, and they know it. So Jesus says, I know you. And he says that to me, I know you. Tony, I know you. But he didn't stop and just said, I know you. He says, and I welcome you to come to me with all your baggage. Bring it all. I can take it all. For me, that's the joy of Christmas. Knowing and experiencing that I can be known and accepted by, by Christ fulfills my longing and gives me great joy. The second thing that I have a longing for, I long to be forgiven. I mean, none of us. I, I, don't, wanna, I don't think any of us want our sins to follow us all of our lives. We don't want to be known by what, we, what we've done wrong all of our lives. And we try to deal with our sins. Many times by covering them, denying them, or even rationalizing them. And we live in fear that the truth one day may come out and we'll be seen for who we really are. A book I read in college, and maybe many of you have read as well, illustrates this point very well. The book is called The Scarlet Letter. It's written by a man named Nathaniel Hawthorne. and It was written in uh, Puritan, Massachusetts in uh, during the years of 1642 to 1649, it tells a story of a lady named Hester Prine who conceived a daughter through an affair, and she refused to identify the father. So as punishment for her, her sin, she was made to wear a red letter A on her dress in public to identify her as an adulteress throughout the rest of her life. Whenever she was in public, she had to wear that. Her, her, but her, she was her quiet her beauty. She was a beautiful lady. She had quiet dignity. It angered the other women in the town who put pressure on her to name the father, but she refused. As the story progresses, the town minister, a man named Arthur Dimsdale, is stricken with an unknown illness, which becomes worse with time. And at the end of the book, after his final sermon, he confesses to being the child's father. And he dies in Hester's arms. The major theme of the book is shaming and how we socially stigmatize people that we feel like are, are sinful. And it's seen in both in the young lady Hester's public humiliation and the minister Dimsdale's private shame and fear of exposure, which led to his illness and death. We fear that. We want to be forgiven. 
There's an Arabic proverb I learned living overseas. It says, a sin hidden is two-thirds dealt with. A sin hidden is two-thirds dealt with. Since there's no understanding of God's grace in Islam, the only way to deal with sin is to keep it hidden. Don't, don't expose it. If I can keep it hidden, I'm good. It's, it's dealt with. Nobody knows. Because the shame of revealing it would be devastating. And the pain of trying to conceal it many times leads to death, as we saw in the story, the Scarlet Letter. David dealt with this, or in the Psalm, the Psalm of David, the Psalmist dealt with this in Psalm 32. It says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For nay and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as in the heat of summer. The psalmist is saying, and could be David wrote this psalm saying, blessed is the man whose, whose sins are forgiven. They're not counted against him. He says, but when I kept silent, when I tried to hide it, tried to keep it within me and didn't, and didn't confess it, it was like I was wasting away. You know, your hand was heavy upon me. And I was fearful that I'd be exposed. But we know through the coming of Christ that we don't have to live that way. We can confess our sins because according to Scripture, Jesus carried all of our sin and shame with him to the cross. By his death and resurrection, we can be completely forgiven of all of our sins. We don't have to carry them. He did that for us. Jesus' sacrifice for sin, before Jesus' sacrifice for sin, the people tried to deal with their sins. It was written by God. God told them they had to slaughter an animal every year, or many times during the year, for the sins they committed. And God accepted these sacrifices as a covering until the coming of Christ so he could have a relationship with them. In Hebrews chapter 10, it talks about that. It says, for since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of the, these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, Make perfect those who are drawn near. God knew this would not be the end. This would be something I'll require them to do, but it won't make them perfect. Since otherwise they would have not have ceased, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshippers, having been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. This was a reminder every year. You're still sinful. You still fall. You still sin. This is, this is just what I've been doing now. Then it goes on in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 to 18. He, he says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for, for, the, from, for that, from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He said before that those offerings before could not make no one perfect. But by his sacrifice, he perfected for all time those who are being, made sanctified, are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. After, for after saying, this is the covenant I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I'll put my laws in their heart. I'll write them on their hand, minds. Then he adds, I'll remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. He said, I, I will never remember them. They're gone. You don't have to remember them. They're gone. You're forgiven. Live in that forgiveness because of my coming to the earth. 
And then in Romans, Paul reiterates this in 3, 21 to 24. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He says we're all the same. There's no difference but through faith in Jesus Christ, for all who believe, we can be made righteous with God. And because of that, in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is nothing that can condemn us for those of us who have come to know Christ. And then in 830, the same chapter, verses 8, 33 and 34, it says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Nobody, nobody can bring a charge against us. We're, we've been made righteous by Christ, those of us who have believed, and no one can bring a charge to us. We're not condemned, never again. I can rest in that. I think for myself, through faith in Jesus' death and resurrection, my sins are not just covered, hidden or rationalized. They are forgiven and remembered no more, no more. I am declared righteous. We are declared righteous uncondemned and unashamed and we can live in this reality this is the joy of Christmas this is joy and me knowing and experiencing this by having my longing fulfilled of being forgiven brings me great joy and the third thing I'd like to share with you that I long for in my life is I long to live a life of significance I want my life to count Foolishly, when I was graduating from college, I told some friends, I wish there was a war that I could volunteer to fight in. That would give me a great thing to do in my life. And I wanted my life to count for a greater purpose than just living for my pleasures and for me. And I think that knowing that we are God's image bearers causes us to want to do more than just take up space on earth. We want to make our lives count. A friend of mine who recently took an early retirement from his job told me that now I want to do something that really counts. I want to make my life count. He said, I want to do something of great significance. And I think, what determines our significance in our lives? What makes what we do significant? If you look back through history, even some of the most significant events in history at the time that it happened were not important at all. Think about the birth of Christ. In the words of Pastor Chuck Swindoll, he says, who could have cared about the birth of a baby while the world was watching Rome and all of the splendor of Rome? At his greatest, Rome controlled one-fourth of the world's population. Most of the countries in Europe and North Africa were under Rome's control. All eyes were on the Caesar, Augustus, and what he wanted. That was in, so who was interested in this couple that was traveling from Nazareth to Bethlehem because of a census that Caesar wanted to take to get more taxes, you know, why would, they interest, why would they be interested in this couple? Who cared about a Jewish baby boy born in Bethlehem? God did. Pastor Swindoll says, without realizing it, the mighty Caesar of Rome was just an errand boy for the fulfillment of biblical prophecy, a tool in the hand of God. While Rome was busy making history, God arrived. He pitched his fleshly tent on silence in a straw in a stable under a star. 
The world at that time didn't even notice. It wasn't even significant. It says the world overlooked Mary's little lamb. So what gives our lives significance? What gives it? I, I believe, for myself personally, I gain significance from who I live for rather than what I do. Who am I living for? In Corinthians chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31, it says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Paul is instructing the believers at that time. They were having a struggle because they were being invited to non-believers' homes to eat with them. And some of the food in the non-believers' homes, the meat, had been meat that was used in, in idol sacrifices. So the believers were saying, should we eat this meat or should we not eat it? If I eat it, am I participating in the, in the sacrifice to idols? Or am I, if I don't eat it, will that make me better? And Paul says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. You have freedom. We have freedom in Christ. But whatever you do, do it for God's glory. Don't do it because of someone else's consciousness or, or something else, but do it for his glory. Do we live our lives that way? Do we live our lives for God's glory? Some years ago, I taught a, a young adult Sunday school class in my church, and I asked two questions. I said, the first question was, why do you work? Why do you work? And uh, they thought it was a strange question. And many of them, they answered the, the, answered the question. They said, well, I work because I need money to live and pay my bills. That's why I work. Or they said, I got to provide for my family. Or I enjoy what I do. So I, I work for that. That's no reasons. Then I asked the second question. I said, okay, then why do you work where you work? And they said, well, it's a job I could find. Uh, you know, it pays me well. Um, I like the people I work with. And those are all good, good reasons. But then I asked them, I said, if I were to ask those same questions to people that, have, that did not know the Lord, that are not Christians, what would their answers be? Would their answers be different? Should, should they be different? Should our answers be the same as non-Christians? And my point was that we live for a different reason. We don't live for what the, how the world lives. And so I asked him, I said, does our work and what we do in our work show that we are living to bring glory to God? And do we believe that the work where we work, God's placed us there so we can reveal his glory to others? Do we do what we do for the glory of God? There was a man... Uh, a monk in France in the 1600s called Brother Lawrence. Before he became a monk, he was a soldier, was injured in battle to the point that he was um, uh, crippled and he could only serve by washing dishes, cooking and washing dishes and repairing sandals. But, but, and so they, the people were like, you know, you, you can't do very much. But, but, but he looked at it differently. He saw it differently. He said, Despite his position and not being able to do very much in the monastery, many people were attracted to him. They wanted to come and see what he was about. He had a reputation for experiencing profound peace, and people came to hear from him and, and, and learn what, how he lived his life. And his wisdom he passed on to him was later in a, a book that is now considered a Christian classic called The Practice of the Presence of God. For him, amid these tedious chores that were, you know, seen as insignificant at the time or not as important as other things, he developed a spirituality and a law of work. He wrote, men invent means and methods of coming at God's love. They learn rules, set up, set up devices to remind them of that love. And it seems like a world of trouble 
to bring oneself into the consciousness of God's presence. Yet it might be so simple. Is it not quicker and easier just to do our common business wholly for the love of him? For Brother Lawrence, common business, no matter how mundane or routine, was the medium of God's love. The issue was not the sacredness or worldliness of the status of the task, but the motivation behind it. Nor is it needful that we should have great things to do. He wrote, we can do little things for God. He says, if I turn the cake that is in the frying pan for the love of him, and that's all I do, there's nothing else to call me, I prostrate myself and worship before him, who has given me grace to work. And afterwards, I arise happier than a king. He said, it is enough for me to pick up but a straw from the ground for the love of God. Is it enough for us to live for the glory of God? If we, do, if, all, if, if we do all that we do for the glory of God, even our smallest tasks and the most insignificant things we do take on a greater level of significance. Through living my life for the glory of God, all my life, everything I do takes on a greater significance. This is the joy of Christmas. God says, I give you life and life abundantly. You can live for my glory. Knowing this and experiencing this brings me great joy. In closing, I want to share a passage from a book that I read some years ago called Safely Home. It is a book written about... Uh, Christians in China and how they live their lives and what they're under. And in the, in the end of the book, he describes a scene in heaven where all believers are, are gathered before Jesus. And this is the scene. He says, a great roar rose from the crowd. The king, Jesus, raised his hands. And upon seeing the scars in his hands, the cheering crowds remembered the unthinkable cost of this great celebration. The multitudes, too numerous to number, began to sing the song for which they had been created, a song that echoed off a trillion planets and reverberated in a quadrillion places in every nook and cranny of the, of the creation's expanse. All were participants. There was only one audience, the audience of one, Christ. And the smile on his face expressing his approval, swept through the choir like the fire across dry wheat fields. Every participant, every singer realized something with undiminished clarity in that instant. They wondered why they had not seen it all along. What they knew in that moment, in every fiber of their beings, was that this person, Jesus, and this place, heaven, were all they had ever longed for and ever would. Is that true of us? Do we long for Jesus? If we do, Jesus fulfills our longings. He fulfills them not just now, but for all of eternity. This is the joy of Christmas. And this is great joy for all people. We're going to have a time of communion where we celebrate, we express our joy in that we have a relationship with Christ. Uh, and we invite those who have that relationship to come and, and share with us and, and celebrate with us.
And if you are, 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 have longings that you would like to, to be prayed for or pray with someone about, I'll be at the front and I'll be glad to pray with you uh, because we all need that. But I, my prayer for you is that you would find yourself and your longings in your heart fulfilled in Christ because that's what he offers for us this Christmas and that is the joy of Christmas. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father, thank you. Thank you that we have joy and uh, great joy because of the longings that you fulfill in our lives and you give us life. Uh, life abundantly, you tell us. And so thank you for that as we celebrate this year of Christmas. May we celebrate that great joy that you give us. And Father, thank you that you, you decided that. You loved us and you came. You know us. You accept us. You forgive us our sins and you give us lives of significance to live for you. And we thank you in Jesus' name.